0: Brother Rick, Pastor Rick Warda, please come. And I like the way Danville announces their visiting preachers. Please come, brother, and brag on Christ. I appreciate the gift God's given, John, in his care for you all and uh, his ability to project his voice. I don't have that particular gift. So I'm sorry if I don't speak as loudly as he does. I, I could hear in my mind's, you know, memory, Brother Don sitting right there where John is now, singing the words to that hymn. What a, and he wrote that, you know, Brother John Fortner. So, if you didn't have the privilege of hearing him, then uh, you missed out. He 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 also had a voice that could project well. If you want to turn your Bibles with me to the Book of John, the Gospel of John, Chapter 3. We have been going through the Book of John in our own church, and I want to continue that today with you, John, Chapter 3. And I've entitled today's message, God So Loved the World. Now that's a very challenging title. Uh, it's taken directly from chapter 3 verse 16 from probably the best known text of scripture in all the, at least, English speaking world. I think the Gideons have translated the Bible, they say, into some 66 languages. And they talk about this verse, particularly. Um, Sadly, I think that this verse has been misunderstood by many, by most. But in John chapter three, I believe that God has given us a very clear explanation of this text of Scripture right here in this context. Amen. And if you listen to what is said here, then I I trust and I pray that God would enable you with all of his people to see the great comfort in what he has said here in this chapter to Nicodemus. Now, I want to preface this that I have thought about chapter 3 and what it means a long time. And I'm sure that I could continue thinking about it for the rest of my life and never exhaust everything in here. In fact, I was thinking yesterday as I was going about my tours that I believe when we get into when we get to heaven, we see the Lord, He's gonna sit us down and He's going to explain the scriptures. In such a way that there will be no ambiguity, it'll be perfectly clear, and we'll see that He fulfilled them all. And we will stand there and sit there at His feet, absolutely enthralled. We won't get tired, we won't run out of time. <laughs> There won't be anything left out. All will be opened up to us. I'm looking forward to that. But right now, I'm time limited. And I'm also limited by my own capacity. So thankfully, you won't have to be here for that much longer. John chapter 3. Now, hopefully, you're familiar with this chapter. It doesn't really begin at verse 1. It actually begins at the beginning of the book the purpose of this book was these things were written that you might believe Amen. that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that believing you might have life through his name now hold that thought that's the reason this chapter was given that you might believe but in the course of pursuing that goal and that purpose What we see here is depicted a man named Nicodemus. And he was capable as a man. Intellectually, he had become very familiar with the scriptures. And everything about this man, and here's here's the key that helps us understand this chapter. Everything about this man that he believed that he practiced and that he thought of others that he thought of God and of Christ was exactly the opposite of the way things truly were if we understand that and we also understand that point by point said right in contrast with everything Nicodemus believed and taught and had had taught others his whole hope Everything that he held to, point by point, the Lord Jesus Christ addresses in contrast to what he believed in an opposite way. Now, if we understand that, it helps us to understand this scripture. What we see here is a man who was a Pharisee. And the Bible itself explains what a Pharisee is. In Luke 18, Beginning in verse 9, it says that Jesus gave a parable about two men that went up to the temple. One was a Pharisee. It says there that he trusted in himself that he was righteous. That's what they taught. That was their doctrine. They held to it. They believed in their heart that when they would stand before God in judgment, that they could take confidence in what they thought in their heart and what they practiced in their life that God would consider that and would justify them. Nothing could be further from the truth. Not only that, but if you read in Matthew 23, point by point, Jesus gives an account of what the Pharisees were. Many things are said there. For example, they were blind leaders of the blind. Another thing they did is that they taught men, they laid heavy burdens on men, but they were unable, they were unwilling to lift those burdens with one finger themselves. And they loved the high places in the market and in in the church, if you will. They loved to be called of men, rabbi, master, father, and many other things like this. So they loved the praise of men. But all that they said, they wouldn't do. They did it outwardly. Jesus compared them to dishes like cups and platters which were outwardly washed, but inside they were still dirty. And he said you were full of extortion and excess. And he also said they were like tombs which are made white on the outside but on the inside were full of dead men's bones. So take all of that which is straight from scripture concerning the Pharisees. They were proud. They thought they knew, but they didn't know anything about the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus says here in verse 3. He says, Except you be born again, Verily, verily, I say to thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Blind. That's what that means. They were blind, and yet they were considered by the Jews... To be the capable ones, the teachers and the preachers, the masters. So that it tells us something about the nature of the Jews' religion. They were led by blind leaders, proud, self confident, trusting in themselves that they were righteous. They believed their heart was right with God, that God could look at them. In fact, in Matthew 7, It's shown there in verse 21 through 23 that when these kinds of people, those taught by these and they themselves, stand and appear before the Lord Jesus Christ, they will talk about what they did. Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name? We were preachers. Haven't we taught? Haven't we cast out devils in your name? Haven't we done many wonderful works? And Jesus will say to them, This is history yet to come. This is future history. He will say to many in that day, Depart from me. I never knew you. Now that describes Nicodemus here. He was a blind leader of the blind. So blind he didn't know he was blind. (laughs) That's real blindness, isn't it? And Jesus told at the end of John chapter nine, he said, "For this, for judgment, I am come into the world, that they which see not might see, and they which see might be made <coughs> blind." This gives us a great deal of uh, distress, doesn't it? Do we see? Will he make us blind? The kind of sight Nicodemus thought he had is that that self-confidence. And what we're going to see here is that the Lord Jesus Christ brings him down. He humbles him. He brings him from his lofty place. And all of his false notions about God, salvation, about entering heaven, about what heaven is like. He's going to obliterate Nicodemus. So that he's left with his mouth open and not anything to say in verse 15. 9, when he says, how can these things be? All right, so if we understand that, that point by point, Nicodemus was false, and whatever Christ said to him was to was to counter, to contrast his error with the truth. Now the other thing that you'll notice, and you can remember this from the rest of the scripture, is that the Pharisees condemned others. In Luke 18, 9, It says they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they condemned or they despised others. This was one of the the hallmark uh, characteristics of a Pharisee. In John chapter 8, they brought a woman taken in adultery. Pushed her right out in the midst of the crowd and said, Look at this woman. She was taken in adultery in the very act. And what do you say? Moses said this. What do you say? You see, and then, in, and so that their their aim was there to shame the woman and to use her to prove that Christ was not faithful to Moses, that somehow he was going to excuse sin in an unrighteous manner. Of course, he didn't do that. And then in Luke seven, Jesus uh, came to the Pharisees house. Simon and a woman came when he was there with Simon. And she washed his feet with her tears and dried them with the hairs of her head. And he and the the Pharisees looked upon this woman like, what? Don't you even know who this woman is? If you knew who this woman was, you wouldn't allow her to touch you. So that the Pharisees despised others and condemned others. Now, if we keep all these things uh, in our memory of what the Pharisees were like then the power of this chapter in John chapter 3 will come home to us in a way both of of humbling us and also comforting us. Because God has to humble us before we will receive the truth of the gospel and be comforted by it. Even in John 4, this woman of Samaria, when when uh, when Jesus asked her for a drink, from the well there. And she said, Why are you asking me for a drink? I'm a woman of Samaria. And they go back and forth, and uh, and finally she gets to that point. She says, Lord, give me this water that you're talking about, this living water, so I don't have to come here to draw. She didn't want to have to show up in the middle of the day to get water. She wouldn't do it when the rest of them were coming because she was ashamed of her life. So she came by herself at noon, so she didn't want to come there so uh, she thought if you give me living water I don't have to come here anymore and Jesus said go we'll call your husband and right away it was like there was this withering uh, exposing of herself as a sinner that led to her saying we know that when Messiah comes he'll tell us all things and Jesus said I that speak unto you and he and revealed himself to her So that the truth came home to the woman after she knew herself in the presence of Christ to be nothing but sin. Now that's what John 3 does. It brings this man, this proud man down in order to show us how God saves sinners and to show us something more than just how God saves sinners but to show us what we don't expect to find here God's own thoughts God's own nature God's own truth his heart because what we see here is that everything Nicodemus was was an entirely opposite and in contrast to the Lord Jesus who is God in the flesh so that what Jesus said and did was totally antithetical to the pharisaical mind. In other words, opposite to the way we are. When you think of Luke chapter 18, where the two are used by Jesus to show us the Pharisee in contrast to the publican, how the publican went down to his house justified rather than the other, we often say, I'm I'm like the publican, I'm not like the Pharisee don't we because scripture is written in a way it's called a hook you know a hook does it's cast out with bait on it and then the fish bites it and they're trapped they're caught and scripture does that it lays the hook and when we swallow it then we're trapped in the very thing where we have to confess that's me so that Luke chapter 18 setting side by side the Pharisee and the publican is doing what? It's setting us in our natural selves in contrast to the effect of what God does when he saves us. We start out just like the the Pharisee and we end up if God has saved us just like the publican and that's how we know the Lord has done it. So let's look at John chapter 3. And I want to just read through this and comment with you. And then we're going to get to the part of this in verses 13 through 16. He says in in verse 1, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God for No man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. What he said here was a conclusion drawn from observable evidence. He could see that Jesus obviously did miracles. No one could deny it. Even the Pharisees. That's what made them so mad, frustrated. And he drew the conclusion that a natural man must draw. If he did miracles, he must be from God. And yet, the faith of the natural man, which draws conclusions from observable evidence, is not the faith that saves. He goes on. Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. Nicodemus had been born once, like we all have. He didn't vote on it. He didn't coerce his parents. didn't counsel them. They acted independent of his input. He had nothing to do with his physical birth. In fact, he was born to Abraham's children so he could trace his lineage back to Abraham himself. And he trusted in himself because of that that he had access to the kingdom of God Jesus said no you've got to be born again Nicodemus said to him how can a man be born when he's old can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born Jesus answered verily verily I say unto thee Now the words verily verily really they're the same way we say amen amen this is the truth this is true. Jesus himself in the book of Revelation is called the Amen. He is the truth. He is the verily, verily. And he says, I say unto you. What's he saying here? You call me a master like yourself as one of your peers. You have no idea the no. infinite distance between who I am and who you are an infinite distance verily, verily he didn't even say Moses said he said I say unto you except a man be born of water and of the spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, water and wind in the original in other words two physical things pointing to two correspondingly spiritual things water points to the word of God in Psalm 119 he says, in verse 93, I will never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. Thou hast given me life. Through the word of God, God gives life. And in and in the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 4, and verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, I have begotten you again by the gospel. Through the preaching of the gospel, God is pleased to give life. And he says, by the Spirit. Jesus said it himself in John 6:63, 6, The words that I speak unto you, they are Spirit and they are life. Breathed out from Christ is the Spirit of God through the Word of God. They're inseparable. You can't separate the saving work of the Spirit from the Gospel of God. In James one verse seventeen, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift, gift cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variables nor nor shadow of turning. Of his own will be yeah, he us by the word of truth. By the word of truth. And in 1 Peter one twenty-three, the same thing, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. And Jesus said in in John fifteen. He says, now you are clean through the word that I've spoken to you. And in Ephesians 5, he says, through the washing of water by the word. So we see clearly that when God speaks, when the Lord Jesus speaks here of the water and the wind, he's speaking of the word of God, the gospel of Christ, which is spoken by men, by the Lord himself. And in the speaking of the gospel, God the Spirit is pleased to apply that gospel to us in a life-giving way. And that is called birth. We're born of God by His Spirit. In us is created a new man. We're created in Christ Jesus. It's also called a resurrection. We're raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. And it's by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God. Can you do it? Of course not. You can't see it. You can't enter. Nicodemus, the most learned among the Jews here, says, how can these things be? He didn't know anything about this. It was plain, if you you understand it, from Scripture. But if you don't, then you're blind to it. So we can't understand it. And even if we understand the words that communicate the truth of it, unless we understand the truth of it by the application of it we still can't know it so let's go on so Jesus says you have to be born of water and spirit you can't enter the kingdom of God that which is born of the flesh is flesh that which is born of the spirit is spirit people have people when they give birth animals have animals flesh begets flesh it's nothing more but the spirit of God births spiritual men and women and boys and girls the spirit of God alone gives birth to spiritual life spiritual God's children children born of God and so he, he brought Nicodemus now to a point of dependency he can't produce this No more than he could produce his physical birth. Much more even than he could not produce his physical birth. He could not make his spiritual birth happen. What is happening here? Nicodemus has become utterly aware that he's dependent upon the work of God. And Jesus is the one who is telling him that he's utterly dependent upon God. So he needs God to do something for him, and he can't make it happen. God has to do this, and verse 8 really seals it up tight. He says, Jesus says in verse 7, Marvel not that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it listeth, wherever it pleases, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the spirit. You don't know where the wind comes from. You don't know where it's going. You can't direct it. You can't slow it down. You can't make it happen. That's the work of the Spirit of God. Now, what does that make us? It makes us utterly dependent upon God, doesn't it? But more than that, what we're going to see here is that Nicodemus came to Jesus. His condition was described as the time of day, it was night. He was darkness itself, a blind leader of the blind. They both would fall into the ditch, professing himself to be something, trusting in his own righteousness, despising others, knowing nothing about the kingdom of God, couldn't see it, couldn't enter it. He was outside of it at this point. And Jesus tells him, you have to be born of the Spirit from above, born as God's own Son. And so then Jesus says this, Notice, in verse 9, Jesus, uh, after he said that in verse 8 about the spirit acting sovereignly, he says, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Now, Nicodemus didn't understand it, that's clear. But there's something more in this verse than just a lack of understanding. You know what's in this verse here? Unbelief. Notice what Jesus says next. He answered and said, art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? You profess to be a master. Who are you teaching? What are you teaching them? You don't know the, the earthly operations of God in the hearts of men? You don't know that? How? What in the world can you be teaching them? He goes on in verse 11. Notice, he's bringing Nicodemus to the point where he has to acknowledge that unless he bows to the Son of God, who is speaking to him, he cannot have his life. Notice what Jesus says. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know. What we tell you, we know. We testify, and we testify what we have seen. And you receive not our witness, What's he saying? Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus is saying, I told you what I do now. I told you what I have seen. And you haven't received my witness. No wonder you don't know. Because you don't believe. And your unbelief is your fault. You're guilty of not believing the one God sent And when he says we here, he's talking about himself and all of his people. Because we all speak the same thing as our master. He says in verse 12, Now, if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, that affirms what I just said. Jesus tells him he wouldn't believe, wouldn't receive it. But if I tell you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And I was talking to my wife about this verse a couple weeks ago, saying, I don't know what that means. But as as we think about it, it has to mean that the Lord Jesus was just explaining to Nicodemus the things of God he does on earth in the hearts of men. And he's about to tell him, the heavenly things which are the basis of that earthly operation of God. Nicodemus didn't believe the things he had already said about what he did know and had seen. How would he believe these heavenly things if he didn't believe the earthly things? And now in verse 13. And here we get to the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ has brought this man to a place of frustration and humiliation in his presence and even though there's no one else around he had to feel as if he was made naked in the presence of God just like the woman at the well go call your husband, I don't have a husband yeah, the reason is you had five and the one you're now living with is not your husband he knew all men he knew what was in man. He searches the hearts and tries the reins. And so in verse 13, it says, Jesus says, And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. This seems like a verse just taken out of the ether and locked right into the conversation, doesn't it? What does this mean? How does it even fit with what Jesus had been saying? Well, again, remember, what the Lord is doing here is he's setting in contrast to Nicodemus's error the truth. Nicodemus and those like him sought the praise of men. They wanted the honor of men. And they thought they had God's respect, his approval, for what they did. They trusted in themselves. Jesus sets all that in contrast to the truth. No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. Now it turns out that these words here were taken almost from Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 30, where he says, don't say in your heart, it's quoted in in Romans 10 verse 6, Moses uh, describes in Romans chapter 10 verse 6, Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law. The, I'm sorry, the righteousness which is of faith. Let me say, let me read it there in Romans chapter 10, because this is a quotation from that place in Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy 30. But listen to this. He says in Romans chapter 10, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. That's an important text of Scripture, and I'm going to tie it back in to. John 3.13 He goes on in Romans 10.5 For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. If you want to have the righteousness of the law if you want to live then you have to do what the law says. But notice, listen to these words with the overlay of John 3.13 The righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise is quoting Moses now say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven Jesus said no man hath ascended up to heaven here it says say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down from above or who shall descend into the deep that is to bring up Christ again from the dead what is he saying here he's saying that In contrast to the law, which requires us to keep the law for life, the gospel says Christ alone can ascend up to heaven. And the way he ascended is that he first descended. And in the second half of this, where he says, don't say who shall descend into the deep, because the only one who could descend into the deep The flood of God's judgment against sin and bear the curse for God's people and rise again is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one man, the Son of Man, who could ever keep the law. The law is so holy that only Christ could keep it. That's why it says in verse 4 of Romans 10, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He's the fulfillment of it. He brought it to a consummate end. This was the purpose of the law, to set forth God's holy law and righteousness in the obedience of the Son of Man. He first descended, made under the law, putting himself under the law in obligation for his people, bearing the obligations, of the entire weight of the law which the Pharisees put on other men and they weren't able to lift it with one finger the Lord Jesus didn't put it on other men he bore it on himself and he took it willingly and he owned not only the obligations of the law for righteousness but he took the sin that was his people and was made sin for them that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So that unlike the Pharisee who looked around to see how much better he was than others, Christ was the only one worthy, the only one appointed and chosen of God in order to fulfill his law for righteousness, in order to do that for his people. And he would do it not by exalting himself as the Pharisees, but making himself a servant, even coming in the likeness of sinful flesh. And so we see here that in in entirely contrasted to to Nicodemus and the Pharisees and the natural man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God himself in the nature of man, which was an infinite stoop for God, who has to stoop to even behold the things on earth. And in heaven, he took to himself the nature of his people in order that he might be under the law for them. Bear the weight of the law, fulfill it too, and then take their sins. And as the high priest in Leviticus 16 confessed the sins of Israel on the head of that scapegoat, he confessed their sins upon his own head. And he laid them on himself, and he bore them away into a land uninhabited, a land of forgetfulness. And God says, I will remember their sins no more. And he did it in love, love that fulfilled the law, because he loved a sinful people. It was in fulfillment of God's law. Exodus 21, verses 2 through 6 talked about the servant who loved his master and loved his wife and loved his children, all of which were given to him by his master. And he says, I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. I will not go out free. And the master would take him put his ear against the post of the door and take the awl and bore his ear through. And the Lord Jesus says in Psalm chapter 40, Your law was within my heart. I come to do your will. Oh my God. And he laid his life down. Bearing our sins and fulfilling God's law in a righteousness when put upon the scales of God's justice. <clears throat> the infinite justice of God on one side and the Lord Jesus Christ in his love for sinners stooping as we read just a few moments ago in Psalm 22 I am a worm and no man laid aside his reputation and he became obedient unto death even the death of the cross and God's scales with his infinite justice on that side and the glory of God in all of his perfections manifested in the work of Christ as our redeemer righteousness everlasting righteousness in the one who is the son of man who first descended and God has highly exalted him and so that he ascended and that son of man is now in heaven and guess what it is from him and him alone that the spirit of God is given Nicodemus couldn't make it happen The Lord Jesus alone could. He sent His Spirit. The woman at the well said, Give me this water. Jesus said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me to drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. The water in the Word, the water in the Spirit. And in John 7 37 through 39, Whoever thirsts, let him come unto me and drink, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And this he spake of the Spirit, which was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When he was glorified because he stood and descended and fulfilled the law for righteousness and bore our sins in order to make us righteous in his own righteousness, then he was highly exalted and given a name above every name so that he now gives his spirit he gives it he says ask and i will give it to you and so then he says this in John 3.14 as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up Moses in the wilderness Numbers 20.21 you can read this The children of Israel were weary because of the way and they spoke against God. They spoke against Moses. And God sent fiery serpents to bite them and kill them. God sent them. They sinned. They despised the word of the Lord. They despised the law of God, Moses. They were dying And and many of them had had died. And they cried to Moses. They cried to God's law. Tell us what to do. They couldn't do anything. There was no medicine. There was no remedy. They were sinful. They had sinned against God, against God's law. They were condemned by God and they were dying. And there was no remedy. They were without hope. Moses said, God said to Moses, You take a serpent, the symbol of the one that bit the people, the the symbol of death, and you take that serpent and you hang it on a pole and you fasten it there. And everyone who looks at that lifted up serpent lives. Everyone who who looked lived. Though they were bitten and dying, though they were condemned and justly so and had no hope, And though though there was no remedy when they saw that serpent lifted up by Moses, according to God's own decree, they lived. And Jesus said, this is what it means. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's the descent of what we were talking about a moment ago. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law be made a curse for us that the promise of Abraham might come on the Gentiles that we might receive the spirit of God. You see? What had to happen for him to be born again? What has to happen for us to be born of God? Christ has to be crucified, lifted up, and he himself has to give his spirit that we might look upon him see him with God given eyes and faith in him he says in verse 15 that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life unlike the Pharisees the Lord Jesus Christ took the lowest place and unlike the Pharisees who could not keep the law he actually kept it but he didn't seek honor from men he did it in order to glorify his father And verse 16 sums it up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, first of all, notice what's prominent in this verse. Is it not the love of God? And is it not how the measure of his gift is the measure of his love. Who can measure the gift of God's Son? Can anything be put alongside the Son of God in any way, in a comparable way? No. God says, there is none beside me. Go ahead and measure. Look in the Hubble telescope. See if you can see the edge of the universe. No, scientists say it's like two billion light years or some dumb thing like that. No, it's not. It goes beyond your vision, and you're not willing to admit it. You know why? Because God, who made it by his word, <coughs> heaven and earth, it says, in, the, in uh, Solomon said, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. God is infinite. The Son of God cannot be measured. There's nothing to compare him with. God gave His Son. He gave everything. Son of His love. He gave everything. That's the measure here. God so loved. And then the next word, the world. Now, the reason this verse is a problem, and it shouldn't be, is because the interpretation of those words, the world. Now there's several things that happen here. Armenians will say, and Armenians, I just mean evangelical, free will works religion. You're talking about the churches in America. Let's, let's stick to those. 95 percent of the churches in America, I'll say, all of man's religion, makes salvation a transaction between you and God where you meet your condition you bring your condition you meet your con- your uh, conditions God has put forth and then he gives you his blessing if salvation depends on us meeting a condition i can tell you right now without any shadow of doubt all of us will spend eternity in hell That's right. there's no possible no possible way for us who are dead in sins to rise up from the casket and undo the sins of our life (laughs) even if we could what are we going to do are we going to somehow produce a righteousness now that God will give us life for it's absolutely ridiculous in the highest sense it's an offense to God why would God give his son and leave a little part up to you that is an insult that is blasphemy but we still have the words that Jesus used This is the words of Jesus to who? Nicodemus, the proud religionist who looks on others and despises them. Who is this world? Well, it's the same people who were in the wilderness, bitten, dying, and justly condemned with no remedy and no hope. They had spoken against God, spoken against Moses, and the Lord Jesus, in these words to Nicodemus, he says, You take your place among the bitten. You take your place among those dying under the justice of God without hope. And you look up to the Son of God crucified who descended of God so loved the world. And who did? who is this world? Well, we like to think of it in terms of the scope of the love of God. In terms of the number of people God loved. But if you understand it in the context, it's really describing the character, isn't it? Isn't it describing the nature of those for whom God, for whom, those God loved for whom Christ died? Amen. Isn't it describing the very fact that's revealed so plainly in Scripture that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? That's the world, the world of sinners that God loved. He says, in promise to Abraham, he says, in thee and in thy seed, meaning Christ, shall all nations of the earth be blessed. How many were blessed? Were all the inhabitants of the world justified by the Lord Jesus Christ? No. No, of course not. But those who were the spiritual children of Abraham, chosen by God, given faith, given the spirit of of God by the authority of the risen and exalted Christ who suffered for their sins. So the world here describes the nature of those those that Nicodemus despised and condemned and thought he was on the right side of God when he did it. That woman taken in adultery in John 8 or the woman who washed Jesus' feet or the sinners who came, the publicans and the sinners Jesus was with and allowed to come into his presence Why do you let sinners and publicans, you eat and drink with them? Yes, I do. Because the righteous don't need a physician. He didn't come to call the righteous. Isn't that what he said? And how could they then be in the world here? Because God only saves sinners. And if you're not a sinner, you're going to have to be made a sinner in order to be saved. In Romans chapter 5, it says the love of God notice the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us and what is the Holy Ghost given to us how does he shed abroad the love of God the love of God in our hearts for when we were yet without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly Nicodemus take your place over there you're on the wrong side you can't see you haven't entered because you're not a sinner you're not ungodly and he goes on in romans chapter 5 not only did he die for the ungodly let me read it to you from romans chapter 5. he says uh, this is the nature of god's love these are those we love god said this and this is our condition and notice the magnitude of god's love when we were sinners he says Uh, In Romans chapter 5 and verse 7, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth; he made known, he set forth, he he recommended to us his love, he commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you're ungodly, if you have no strength, to keep God's law, like those bitten in the wilderness. They deserved it. Nicodemus even knew that. But he wasn't one of them. He never spoke against Moses. He never spoke against God. Yeah, that's a problem. Because Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. Do you see the difference? The Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for the sheep. <coughs> Those given to him by his Father. In Romans chapter 8, this is the last verse, and we'll close with this. I, want, I, I wish I had time to, to to demonstrate from Scripture to you that this is the nature of God's love, undeserved. Romans 8, verse 29. Whom he did foreknow. If God knows us, that's, that's unique, isn't it? Jesus told those in Matthew 7, I never knew you. Here he says, for those he did foreknow. In Romans 11, he says, God doesn't cast away his people which he foreknew. Here, those he did foreknow, he knew them in love. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Does God ever do anything that he doesn't know he's going to do before he does it? Has God ever done one thing in time that he didn't know that he would do before time and set it down in his counsel and decree. No. Known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the world. He works all things according to the counsel of his own will. His word and his will and his work are all one. They're all one. He does all his will and all that he does is his will determined before time. So he says here plainly, he knew his people, he predestinated them to what? To be conformed to the image of his son that he, Christ, he, might be the firstborn among many brethren. They were going to be his children, brethren of Christ. He predestinated him to that. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. Whom he called, then he also justified. Whom he justified, then he also glorified. An unbroken chain from beginning to end. Those in heaven are those God determined to save before time. If he didn't, he's not God. I'm telling you, Scripture affirms this. There's no separation between those in heaven. In fact, Matthew 25, 34, he says, "Enter into the the uh, the um, kingdom prepared for you of my Father from before the foundation of the world." There you have it. Anyway, if you've been, if you were known, if you were loved of God, then you shall be glorified. That's what these are saying. Verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? Notice, if God be for us, is God for those he loves? That's what this is saying. Is God for those he does not love? If God loves you, he's for you. If God is for you, read on. Who can be against us? God himself is for you. Verse 32, He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God gave everything to his Son. And God gave his Son. That means he'll give you everything with his Son. There's no question about it. If he gave his Son, there's nothing to compare. He's going to give you everything. Therefore, if you perish, it's because he didn't give you his Son. Who shall lay anything to the charge Notice, of God's elect. That's who he's talking about. It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? Stand up. Who condemns? What's the answer of God? What is the answer of God to all condemnation against his people? Come on. It is Christ that died. That's the answer. What's your answer to God my answer is the Lord Jesus Christ he has to answer and with himself for me that's the answer God received him for me and who shall separate us from the love of Christ you see God's love for his people has no beginning it has no end and it has consequences God does something for those he loves he's for them no one can separate them They and their sin cannot separate themselves from him because he loved them when they were sinners, ungodly. Enemies of God, he reconciled them by the death of his son. I'm so thankful that the Lord says, God so loved the world, the world of sinners, the world those that Jesus came to save. There's no question about it. If the Lord loves a people, He's for them, and if he's for them, no one can separate them from his love. His love is eternal. What an amazing thing. You see the differences between Nicodemus and Christ? Jesus is the Son of Man. Fully God, as if he were only God. Fully man, as if he's only man. But he's the God-man. And what he said and what he did when he described the Son of Man to Nicodemus. When he described the love of God for the people that Nicodemus despised was entirely antithetical to Nicodemus and all who are like him, which we are by natural birth. And the evidence of being born of God is what? It's the publican. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's the evidence. We are at the foot of the cross looking up upon Christ lifted up, and God did Christ sent His Spirit to do that in us. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I hope the Lord is pleased to convince you of these things.